Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, we're your Marketers in Motion podcast hosts. I'm Josh Janoviak. And I'm Megan Pear. Today's topic, bloody hell, the convergence of content, email, and my British mom. We all know email isn't the sexiest marketing topic, nor is it the most fun, but if done well, it can lead to the best ROI of any tactic in your marketing plan. Regardless of industry, and even though there's more noise in the inbox and more apps for consumers to juggle, email continues to prove itself as the best one-to-one communication channel for brands and most preferred by consumers. But marketers continue to struggle with their email efforts. Even some 26 years after the first email campaign was sent, marketers are still challenged by how to ethically grow subscribers subscribers, ensure deliverability, and create content that is timely, targeted, and relevant. Today, we're joined by Michael Barber and his British mum, Jean, to explore some of the best and most practical ways to improve your email marketing, challenge your email conceptions, and discuss just why this tactic continues to be vitally important for marketers. We'll discuss how to ethically grow your email subscriber list and also how to select the appropriate email service provider for the job. But before we get started, let's give a shout out and special thanks to our sponsors. Yeah, we couldn't do what we do without them, including this podcast. We want to thank MI Biz uh, and BizCom Media for our gold sponsors of the year. Our silver sponsors are PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio, and Red 66 Marketing, who we definitely have to give a shout out because they offered up their conference room services where we are recording today's podcast. Yes, so thank you so much to them and Rebecca and team. And to our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning, where we host all of our luncheons. So again, a huge thank you to our sponsors. Uh, like we said, we really could not run our AMA programming, including this podcast, without their support. Um, and they've been incredible the entire year and continue to come back with us. And, and we truly, truly appreciate their support. Today, we're joined by Michael Barber, and his British mom is going to even chime in. Megan, why don't you do the honors of introducing our guest? I would be happy to. We are very excited to be joined again by Michael Barber. And at least for the next few weeks, he is the Senior Vice President, Chief Creative Officer at Godfrey. And Godfrey is one of the largest U.S.-based B2B agencies. And Michael was also named one of Marketo's fearless 50, which recognizes the top marketers around the globe driving bold, fearless marketing and digital transformation during his time at Godfrey. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. And this work has been awarded numerous industry awards, but more importantly, has driven successes, including the most effective and cost-efficient campaign in the history of a Fortune 500 company, with a 160-time return on ad spend and 10 million earned media impressions within the first month of a new product launch. Wow, that is quite impressive. 
Outside of Godfrey, Michael haunts his unhealthy obsession with donuts, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Cold brew, <laughs> planes, BMWs, uh, the Arizona Wildcats, and his two Westies, McDougal and Bowie. Michael, welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast. We're glad to have you back. Thanks, Megan and Josh. It is uh, it's great to be back. I'm I'm grateful for your team for having me back twice in Grand Rapids and twice on the podcast as well. Yeah, we just love having you. We love hearing your knowledge and thanks for sharing it with us. Of course, my pleasure. I do want to mention before we get started with this podcast that episode six, which we recorded with Michael back in April, we cover a lot of these base concepts and we cover a lot of things in more detail than we do today because we're going to focus a little more on how to grow your email list. And we're also going to dive into how to select the correct ESP for the job. So we'll put a link to that podcast into the show notes and we'll probably make many references to some of the conversations and links that we had in the prior podcast. But I want to get right into the meat of the topic for today. And I'm very curious to see how Michael has bridged the motherly advice into the world of marketing, particularly our email inbox. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just some backstory to why a British mother and the topic of email. Um, as, as Josh and Megan teed up this conversation, you know, I think that as marketers that are going to a ton of different conferences around the world, we often are all sitting in the same presentation. So the packaging of, of my British mother is just a series of lessons that she has taught my sister and I over the course of the last, oh man, three and a half, four decades, uh, and then applying those to what we do as email marketers. And I just have to say, your mother is just so cheery and bright, and I just love these little clips of her. So thank you for sharing sharing her spirit with us through this as well. For sure. It's, uh, it's, she's, she's a good soul to, to share with the world, that's for sure. <laughs> the world needs more of uh, Georgina Jane Barber and my mom. Oh, that's so nice. Let's cue up the first lesson from Michael Barber's British mom. That would be... Be bloody brilliant. The idea here, of course, you know, quintessentially British phrase, is this idea around email that we need to challenge ourselves to be as best as possible in the channel. And this comes out of a couple of things. One, we are just really not trying that hard when it comes to email marketing. Mm -hmm. When you look around at surveys in the marketplace, what we see is that right up the middle, about 50% of marketers tell us, hey, we just send a one size fits all campaign to each and every one of our contacts, each and every one of our subscribers. We don't use our email service provider well to actually target and provide personalized or relevant content inside of those campaigns. So the idea around Be Bloody Brilliant is that, is that we need to just challenge ourselves to utilize the best practices as possible all the time. And that comes down to design, that comes down to from name, that comes down to subject line, comes down to every component of the email campaign that we need to be leveraging best practices as much as possible, given just how popular this channel is with consumers and given the fact that it generates such a solid return on investment for us as email marketers. Now, Michael, one of the things that I, that I do want to point out that we mentioned in our first podcast, the reason that email is so successful is because it stood the test of time and people understand it, people know how to do it. And since our first podcast, you know, we've experienced more at work with texting platforms and using different, different types of communications to uh, just increase communication with the team. But quite honestly, what I'm finding is everybody kind of has their own way of communicating, but everybody knows email. Even though some of the new technologies like the groups allow you to kind of come and go and set your different notifications, 
for chiming into the conversation. Um, it can be a little more difficult with email, but, but people just know email. It's like you get it. It's there in your inbox. Yeah, people are comfortable with it, right? I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen over the past few years is just these plethora of channels that we as consumers are contributing content to, that we are watching curated content in. Um, and that has led to, and that certainly our attention is in many different places on any given day. I think the other challenge is, is that with any one of these platforms where we are spending an abundant amount of more time, particularly social media, this is a place that we don't control, right? We, there could be a new algorithm change tomorrow. There can be, uh, there can be any number of things that these social media networks are changing from the user experience uh, of these apps and these platforms to the algorithms that serve us content. And between all of the things that are happening geopolitically uh, and also just the plethora of channels and people spending an abundant amount of time in all these different places, I think the one thing that email has going for it, it is the place we understand and seemingly know how to control. Yes, there are a lot of algorithms and more than ever machine learning going into what we see in our inbox based on tabs and focused inboxes and all these other features that all the uh, inbox providers are giving us uh, at the end of our experiences. But the reply, the forward, the reply to all, heaven forbid, inside of a massive organization, <laughs> all of those things are functionality we have understood and been a known quantity since the early days of Hotmail, late, mid, excuse me, mid-90s, 1996, 1997, right? So it's something we feel like we have control of and it is the behavior and experiential behavior that we get. We get those things. And I think that that, uh, that in and to itself means that it becomes very much the default channel. And that's not to say that any one of these team collaboration platforms or just conversation platforms, whether it's Messenger or Slack or Asana, don't have uh, or couldn't seemingly replace email at all. It's simply that this is a known quantity that works across whether you're talking about having conversations with colleagues or whether you're having conversations amongst your family and it's a known quantity. And I think that's why you've seen people continue to leverage it and seen growth in this channel over the past few years as people have uh, shifted away from uh, some social media channels and from making sure that their attention is in the right place. Yeah, and I want to I talk about some of these um, aspects of being bloody brilliant, right? How we build better emails, some of the technical things here. But I do want to mention this because I wrote this down in my notebook when you were speaking at our luncheon and I started and underlined it. You say that email is a one-on-one -on -one experience and we really need to focus on building that trust and showing that we care. And that's why we need to really spend the time in building these better emails. Couldn't agree more. I think that we have to understand that there's another human being at the end of mm -hmm. every email that we send. And regardless if, by the way, regardless if you're sending an email campaign on behalf of the brand or organizations that you work for or represent, or if this is just you sending an email to a prospect, a customer, a friend in your life, there, we always have to understand that there's a human being at the end of that mm -hmm. that uh, reads, that is participant in different types of groups and different types of languages, um, that that is expecting a certain type of experience, right? So the value of the little things matter at the end of that email. So when we talk about being bloody brilliant, we're talking about things like from name. So what is the from name that you put within uh, your email campaign? There is a lot of research that suggests that 
you can be testing different from names and potentially see significant engagement increases when you have different from names other than your organizational name. One of the examples I've shared uh, in the past with your team is the one from Drift. Mm -hmm. If you're not familiar, website chat app platform. They tested very different concatenations of their from names inside uh, of their names and their organization name inside of the from name field within their email. And what they found is when they used the first name, the word from and the name of the organization, that had a significant impact on open rates. So understanding that it is all the tiny things from the from name into subject lines and then into the content of the campaign, making sure we understand that each and every subscriber is expecting a different experience, regardless if you're doing a campaign for from a marketing perspective or if you're just a salesperson that's targeting a prospect. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned subject lines. I, I want to talk a little bit about this because I know this is, or I've heard from other marketers that this is like the one thing that you need to make sure is under a certain amount of length and spend a lot of time with the you know subject line, but that's not really what matters. Can you, can you talk a little bit about kind of the bigger buckets that really do matter when we talk about subject lines? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, it's not, this is not my research by any stretch of imagination. Mm -hmm. This is the framework that I suggest. It comes from the from uh, from a from multiple different sources, but it includes uh, the idea of sentiment, right? So the, the words that we choose, the emotions uh, that we choose within those subject lines matter. Diversity, and this is this idea that different types of people communicate very differently. So what you may describe to an engineer that is you know 65 uh, and Caucasian, you may use different language for an engineer that's 25 and not Caucasian. Sophistication, this is this idea that it's email, right? So mm -hmm. the more simple, the better. That does not mean the shorter, the better. Just simply the more simple that you can create that takeaway in the subject line, the better. And we are actually seeing research from an, an emoji perspective that says when you pair this idea of sentiment, diversity, and sophistication together, and you include what would be an impactful emoji, it will make that subject line even more potentially uh, engaging for the subscriber. Something like 57% of brands last year, according to experience, or excuse me, in 2017, according to Experian, uh, had increased open rates when they included emoji in their subject line. So hmm. when we talk about this idea of, uh, of length, I think a misnomer is, is that length impacts open rates, mm -hmm. and it actually doesn't. The data suggests that it doesn't cause it to be worse or better. I think the takeaway from that sort of data is that what you choose to put in those words, what you front load, what you would like people to be paying attention to matters more than maybe the, the size of that subject line. And I'm not saying go hog wild and have <laughs> sure. subject lines that are <laughs> thousand characters long, but simply make them relevant to the content in your campaign, to that end user, and ensure that they understand what they are going to get inside of that campaign the moment that they read that subject line. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One thing you had mentioned in your presentation was some of the what not to do's and gave some great examples of some of those emails that, that come in. The print is so small. There's tons of stuff you have to scroll through before you get to the meat of the content. Stuff is numerous columns and it's kind of all over the place. So what are some of the best practices as far as, as design? Because if I think I, if I took my notes correctly, did you say eight seconds is what the average audience would spend inside an email? Yeah, so what the data suggests is it's sort of a 50-50 50 uh, split of people that are spending less than eight seconds and 50% that are spending more than eight seconds. And okay. that data comes from the team at, at Litmus. 
great third-party uh, analytics tool that email marketers can utilize. And what they see is they essentially slice that data into three buckets. So anybody that's reading under two seconds is considered a, a glanced read. Anything from two to eight seconds is a skim read and anything above eight seconds is a read or engaged subscriber, if you will. And what the data suggests over the course of the last since 20, I think their team started looking at this in 2010, 2011, 2012, that frame, that, uh, that, that area of time, if you will, uh, through last year is that audiences are basically 50% split between greater than eight seconds and less than eight seconds. So you've got a finite time to engage your subscriber. And by the way, any of the metrics that we talk about are largely macro level, right? So mm -hmm. there may be somebody that's listening to this podcast that says, well, that's all well and good, but we get 24, 25, 26, 28 seconds, whatever that threshold is. There's plenty of brands out there that are getting even higher than that. Uh, these are just macro level trends, right? Sure. But what that takeaway is, is that, hey, we at least need to try and distill what we would like someone to take away in eight seconds. So are they going to make a decision to continue reading or converting within that time period? Can we get across what we would like in about eight seconds uh, to ensure that someone at least gets some value from the content that's hitting their inbox? So how can you design that campaign for maximum efficiency as far as your scanning eye? Somebody's going to take that first eight seconds, kind of scan through and say, yay or nay, I want to engage more with this. What what types of things can you do to make that content scannable? Some quick hits. Uh, you would slim up your headers, right? Don't utilize the first five or 600 pixels on all the add to address book, white label my address. Here's our tiny little social icons crammed into the top right corner, right? All the major brands that are doing email well have really optimized that header space because it allows you to bring up the content in the campaign. Then as you dive into the content, you want it to, uh, usually I suggest two frameworks, uh, design frameworks. You can do an inverted pyramid. So what do you want people to take away down to the conversion? What do you want people to take away and then down the conversion, almost an inverted pyramid, if you will. I'm, I'm acting these out with my hands. Thinking people can see it <laughs> they can, of course. Um, or a zigzag. So from right to left, what would you like people to pay attention to? Because that is our natural, at least within Western civilizations, that is our natural reading style. So two specific things that you can utilize to draw the eye, that inverted pyramid or that zigzag from right to left to get people down uh, your content. Appropriate hierarchy. The thing that you want people to care about should probably take up the most space within the messaging framework. If you make everything the same size, people's eyes don't know where to go. You've got to tell them this is what matters and then this and then this and then this. So in a newsletter, What's the biggest takeaway? Should probably be front and center at the top. Then as you draw down, things can get smaller. Hierarchy can get different. Maybe the call to actions become smaller, right? So create the appropriate hierarchies for the goals of each individual campaign. Yeah, I love that you mentioned headers because this is like a, a pet peeve of mine. I love those campaigns that send like the giant header image. And you're like, well, that's nice and pretty and that's a nice image, but where's the content? And then you have to scroll all the way down to actually get to the meat of the email. And not everybody is going to, to do that scroll so they can lose, you know, readers quickly. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you have to think about your end user, right? You have mm -hmm. to think about the person on the other side of the inbox. And I will tell you just my own individual experience is this. Inside of my professional email, email address at Godfrey, at least for the next couple of weeks, I don't pay attention beyond the fold. Mm -hmm. So if I open your campaign and you've got me, I will continue reading. But if you don't have me in that header area, listen, 
I got eight hours a day to do really good work. I've got other better things to do than try and dive through your content, unless it's coming from a brand that I really admire or some a brand that's built up a relationship with me. I don't have time in the day to give my attention to those sorts of campaigns. Now, if I'm sitting on the couch after mm -hmm. five o'clock, hypothetically, <laughs> and I'm looking at a consumer oriented campaign, the likelihood of me continuing to scroll is probably a lot higher. So I think as brand managers and as email marketers or as business owners, we have to understand the, the location where someone's reading, the headspace that they're in, what are the distractions that they're going to have around them, because all of those things matter these days. So we've got to really get a good understanding of what sort of environment is that individual in when they're trying to consume that content. When I'm at work, I'm maximizing my time on the things that matter, which is with my team and our clients and the work that we're doing, and I'm minimizing the things that distract me. When I'm at home, I can spend a little bit more time with looking at those campaigns, right? So as brand managers and as uh, the owners of the email channel, we have to understand where that individual is in their day, what they're doing, what sort of headspace that they're in. That all comes from persona work and what they're telling us in feedback, but we can also just see it in, in our tracking and our analytics, what they are and are not paying attention to. So understand that you know even if we as as different brands we've got to understand that the experience that people are going to be looking for inside of the inbox is often going to be different brand to brand mm -hmm. well and now personalization and customization and customer experience is a big piece of the puzzle and most of these email service providers now have some great tools that you can utilize to get Michael Barber to open that email that you send to him because they know your likes, they know what catches your eye. What are some of the the common uh, platform features now that people can start utilizing to to help dial in those those segments? Yeah, so all of the platforms have what I call power features, right? It's not necessarily they self-identify what these power features are. These are just things that allow you as a marketer to drive personalization and targeting options. So, for example, uh, Marketo. Uh, has tokens that allows us to create a massive amount of efficiency within that platform. It also allows us to do personalization at scale. We on you know other platforms like Mailchimp, they have tags and they have segments. Those are those power features. So each email service provider is going to have a variety of power features that allow you to do these things at scale. It's about understanding what those power features are and then leveraging them. And by the way. It, for any one of these platforms, these are typically features that don't have a lot of good training opportunities to understand how you leverage them very well. So what I would suggest is do dive through the knowledge base of the training guides for each one of these platforms, but look externally for other training resources, because I can tell you that having done this for a number of years, the best training that I've had has come not necessarily from the group of colleagues that I've got inside of any organization that I've worked for, because we're all learning these things at the same time, it's come from third-party resources, power users that are out there writing content and courses. Look for those sorts of courses that are out there. And there are some great ones if people need ideas for them, uh, depending upon the platform, I've got some ideas I can certainly send their way. Um, there's a lot of great curriculum and content out there that can show you how to use these power and I've noticed, because we use MailChimp, and I know we've talked in episode six, and I know that you put a lot of weight on MailChimp as far as their ability to adapt and where they'll be heading in the future. Now I'm noticing a lot of changes 
when I log into our MailChimp account. We've talked a lot about these advanced features and just in my busy day to day, I haven't taken a lot of time to go in there and research them, but now they're all showing up on that front page. So as I scroll down, it's showing me all of these different customization tools and all the stuff that we are talking about right here, which is awesome. So I'm very excited to, to dig in. It's talking more about you know how you can segment your audience and how you can target and uh, Michael, are there any other email service providers that uh, that are doing those same types of things and rolling them out in a similar fashion? Yes, very much so. I mean, any one of them, I don't want to get too tool specific just because there's going to be any number of tools that the brands that are listening and people that are listening um, are probably have at their disposal. But all of them have got these targeting features, whether it is whether they're called segments or whether they're called tags or tokens or something along those lines, all of them have those power features that are available to create personalization and targeting at scale. Uh, not necessarily as robust as all of them. Certainly there is a sliding scale and things we'll get into to how to make that selection of the appropriate email service provider for your team is something that is really, really important. And we're gonna discuss as we go on today. All of them though, at the end of the day, have some sort of features that will allow you as a brand to deliver something that is ever so slightly more personalized than just a one size fits all campaign. It could be at a minimum time of day send. It could be uh, utilizing merge tags to personalize uh, from name, last, excuse me, from name, subject line, the individual's first and last name or anything that you have from a data perspective inside you could personalize by content. All of these different features are available. It just depends on which particular platform you're on. All right, so let's transition into talking about personalization because I think this is the the key to really building those uh, relevant uh, emails that are going to resonate with your audiences the best. So let's hear what Jane has to say on the subject. It's always the little things, my love. This is one of my mom's favorite sayings that it's always about the little things that we do for people. And in this case, inside the inbox, the little things that we can do, at least my interpretation of my mother's saying, is this is the, all the little personalization things we can do as marketers. And I try and bucket personalization into four areas, and that's geographics, demographics, psychographics, and behavioral. Um, those first three, geographics, demographics, and psychographics, that's usually data that you're personalizing on for consumer-oriented brands or B2C brands. Mm -hmm. The last one, that last bucket, the behavioral, that's typically the personalization or the targeting or automation flows that we're building around for more business to business or ABM or those sorts of types of uh, efforts. So four key pillars around personalization that comes from uh, the team at Email Monday, which is a great uh, email blog uh, that's on the web at emailmonday.com. That is the, the four key pillars that we look at to at least start a personalization effort. What data do we have? Is it clean data? Where does it fit within these? And then how can we personalize from from name to subject line to the content of the campaign to time of day based on these types of buckets. So how does that break out? You know, if we think about uh, demographics uh, and also geographics, that can help determine time of day, the type of content based on seasonality in, in those geographics, right? Uh, social status or education, the things we can do from a demographic perspective, as we think about from a consumer brand, concerns, values, personality, attitudes through those psychographic type of different personalization opportunities. And then as you shift into uh, those personalization opportunities that we can do as a B2B brand or these behavioral buckets, 
you can personalize based on things like buyer stage, life cycle, status, engagement, what pages that they're looking at on the site or what are the benefits that they're, they're seeking with your product or service. So that allows us to do a lot of different things from a personalization perspective. And what we find is especially when we consider the, the, the sort of the bottom line, or if you will, below the fold metrics that matter in email, which are beyond the delivery rate, beyond the open rate, as we look into click-through rate and conversions uh, down that funnel, personalization makes a huge difference in those metrics that are driving business results, especially at the conversion and the experience and engagement level. How much time do they spend on the campaign? Where do they go post-click? Um, all of those things are largely driven by the effort that we make from a personalization perspective inside of the email campaign. Oh, absolutely. People want to have things customized directly for them. So it's, you know, designed exactly for what they're looking for. I love the example that you use. Something as simple as um, you had an email that you subscribe to that is a, a clothing brand and they have your size in the shop size you know, whatever it is, but that is data that they pull on you. It's very specific to you. So something just super simple, one little small edit uh, that they can use to really design that experience. Yeah. And again, I mean, you think about that brand is thinking about their end user. Mm -hmm. This is a a fashion oriented brand targeted at men. Most men don't like to go shopping. I quite enjoy it personally, but most men (laughs) don't like to spend a lot of time shopping. Um, And so actually personalizing that button saves the dude, the person on the other end of that experience, a few seconds. Mm -hmm. They don't have to select the size. It's pre-selected for them when they get that to that page and they can just check out as quickly as possible. It reduces the amount of friction between the click and the purchase. So those personalization efforts can have impacts on us, us marketers, getting our customers to do the things we would like them to do or hopefully do. Yeah. Well, even with that example, I'll say women too, I love to shop. So, but I would hate to click on something and they don't have my size available, you know? So again, it's about removing that friction. If I go there and they don't have my size available, I have just, you know, kind of become angry with this whole experience and I might drop off from that brand. For sure. Yeah. Michael, I will, I, I love to shop. I'm I'm with you (laughs) there. It's just a, it's a fun experience and uh, you know what? I don't mind it. I got the the thrill, the thrill of the hunt, whether it's online, whether it's in store, but I mean, I will, I will research and and I love to, and that's why I love learning about all the new marketing concepts and about, you know, why we should be educating people on our process and why we should be talking about the behind the scenes and how things work and, and what's behind the company because I love to look at all that stuff and I love to be an educated shopper and I like to support organizations that are doing great things. And I love to, you know, buy products that of course, price is a, is, is a big thing too, but I'm willing to spend a little more for a local place that also gives some of their money back to uh, great organizations and people that are doing great things. So the other thing that I like about personalization and the way that the inbox is, is is kind of trending is some of the interactivity in there because mm-hmm. now there's videos. Now you can actually do some ordering, I think, on some on, on some uh, pages without even having to leave your inbox. That's correct. So there is a there was a startup that was just gobbled up. Well, I say just about nine months ago was gobbled up by uh, you know the good people at Salesforce Marketing Cloud that gobble up every uh, <laughs> interesting feature that any startup uh, grabs that gets the attention of consumers. And that particular startup uh, created uh, a lot of 
interaction abilities inside of the inbox. Over the past five years, we have seen a tremendous evolution in tech inside of the inbox, just what particular code base, you know, HTML5, CSS3, um, uh, all of those things becoming adopted by most of the inboxes that allows us to create a lot more interaction than just a flat JPEG and text inside of a campaign. So at the, you know, sort of the, the, the beginning stages of interaction, we're talking about the GIF, right? So taking some sort of animation around an image and telling an interesting story or maybe the ability to shorten up content with a GIF to be able to see different things that people would like to see, you know, things like colors or different options that are available to them. And then we get into the ability to actually stream in live content. So you do have the ability these days to pull in live social content that's being shared into an email campaign. Um, also doing things like Q&A, so interaction abilities uh, with inside of campaigns. And then the sort of farthest end of that spectrum, which is the team that got gobbled up by Salesforce, they were starting to do things like, <clears throat> excuse me, a dynamic cart inside of the inbox. So you could order the, the actual contents of your cart, the items that you're shopping for inside of the email campaign. It would develop at the end of the campaign, a dynamic subtotal and total. You'd click on that and everything would be sitting in your cart. The other thing that came out of this team and the startup was the ability to do reviews natively inside the inbox. So we are often getting pinged, whether we're, we go shopping for something, have a service appointment, or, or, or we order some new product, and then we've had it a few days getting feedback on our experience with that product or the organization, the brand. Uh, inside of the inbox, we're getting those customer feedback uh, surveys and questions. This technology allowed you to answer those questions, provide open answers to open-ended questions, hit submit, and never leave the inbox. So the ability to get interactive uh, or jazzy, if you will, inside of the inbox these days is much more than what we've had in the past. I don't think that's going to slow down. I think what you're very much seeing is, and we, you, you, us three have talked about this before, the convergence of the web inside of the inbox. And if you think of why, this makes a lot of sense uh, for any number of things. Prevalency of mobile, that means that you're You've got people that have got offers and deals and expect a certain type of interaction based on everything they can do in their phone. You've got 5G coming in, which is going to allow content to come down quicker, bigger experiences inside of the inbox. And then it's also about the inbox providers. So we're talking about Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, Outlook, and the like, wanting to glean the data from what people are interacting with inside of the campaign and what they're not. And also trying to get potentially skim an additional amount of revenue from brands that are inside of the inbox that are driving a tremendous amount of dollars to their own websites. Um, and how do these inbox, inbox providers, which essentially provide the real estate for where email campaigns are sitting, they capitalize on that. Well, have a cart inside the inbox, skim a little bit of revenue off the top of that to be the referral source. And suddenly it becomes a revenue generating source beyond what it already is for many of these organizations. So that interactivity is something that I don't think is going to slow down. And you're, you're constantly seeing new brands try this interactivity and something I think you'll see become even more popular over the next year, two years, three years, and, and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. I just recently got one that was the review thing, uh, and it was so nice. You know, normally I'm a little hesitant because I'm like, oh, I have to go out to their website, 
type it in, submit the form, you know, but it was yeah. right in the email, had the little stars. I could just choose, you know, rate my experience and send. And it was very frictionless. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. It's just the little things. Right, have you guys okay. both watched Zombieland? Sorry, can't help you out there. Oh, Michael? I can't help you out there. Yeah. <laughs> I must be on some other planet because I thought it was one of those movies that just everybody saw Zombieland. Okay, so it's not a horror movie. It's not The Walking Dead. It is a comedy on the end of the world with zombies. Okay. But there are rules to Zombieland that one of the main characters has. And one of them is enjoy the little things. Woody Harrelson's character throughout the whole movie, it's not a spoiler, don't worry, he's on a search for a Twinkie. All he wants since the end of the world is a Twinkie. And at one point he finally gets his Twinkie and hence it's this whole rule of enjoy the little things. So it's nice to see that Woody Harrelson's character and Michael's British mom, that it really is about the little things. And as marketers, I think those little things can have big impacts. So yep. well, let's see what Michael's mom has to say next. Be kind. You can't be good. Be kind. <laughs> it's, so, it's such motherly <laughs> advice. I know. It is. Um, so this idea of kindness is something my mom has, you know, whether it's uh, her saying be kind or if you can't be good, at least be kind. Uh, you know, another way of phrasing this is don't judge a book by its cover. That was another lesson that she, she utilized quite a bit in our childhood. I translate that for us as email marketers is understanding and really, regardless if you're an email marketer, let's just put period as an organization, Mm -hmm. everything we should be doing should be delivered with empathy. This idea that we have to be delivering experiences that are empathetic for our customers because they can have millions, if not tens of millions of social followers and can destroy all the goodness we've built around a brand in a hot second these days. Uh, And this extends right to the inbox. We have to understand that at the other end of that experience is a human being and they want to be treated with kindness. And there are specific tactics that we can do as email marketers to make that end user feel like we have thought of them. That starts from always saying hello, your welcome campaigns are really important, not only to not only because you typically see higher engagement rates on those campaigns, but they impact the long-term customer value of your customers in terms of them staying a subscriber and spending more money with you. Um, always making sure that you're growing your list organically. We're going to get, mm-hmm. I think we're going to talk, yeah. we're going to touch on this more as, as we go into this conversation, but I am not the type of individual who is going to profess to buy lists. There are ways to do it. I'm not going to say don't do it because there are very, there are ethical ways to do it. Um, I'm just not a firm believer that we should be leveraging purchase lists to grow uh, true engagement inside of the inbox. Um, there's just a variety of ways, and we're going to dive into all of these organic ways that you can grow your list that allow someone to know that you care about them because they've signed up for your campaign. You haven't forced them into some subscription list from some list that they bought. It goes to speaking like a human being. Understand that at the other end of that inbox is just a normal human being like you. So the copy that you utilize in campaigns should speak to them. It should utilize words that they use. It should utilize tone that they should use, that you, that they're going to utilize. It should utilize the feel and the, and the, and the, and the experience that you want to deliver inside of the inbox. It's also things like respecting time, right? We have to understand that we've got a few seconds with these people, respect our time, put the calls to action higher in the, in the hierarchy of the campaign, um, and ensuring that you allow people to manage their experience with your brand. In that sense, 
ask people what they want from a content perspective when they're subscribing or, or in your subscription preferences center. And if they do get your, to your subscription preferences center, make sure that you speak like they would want to be spoken to rather than saying like, never email me again or unsubscribe all, right? Change that language to be frequency orientated or change that language to be different content types. Simply make it a more engaging experience like we would expect if we were having a one-to-one -one conversation with someone. Sure, and I think this is one of the areas that is a good way for marketers to set themselves apart because there's so many people who aren't doing this and it's yeah. very simple to do. I Here's your tweetable uh, quote, and I think I tweeted this out too, but I love it. It's empathy is required even in the inbox and such a small small thing and the, you know small changes that you can make to really make a big impact. Yeah, you know, you look at um, any number of, of little examples that I can share. I think one brand that does this so well, if there's a brand that I love about respecting people's time and respecting them as human beings inside the inbox, it's the team at Sticker Mule. Oh, if you're yeah. not familiar with Sticker Mule, it's mm -hmm. stickermule.com. This is a company that makes everything stickers, like every type of sticker that you could ever imagine. Die cut square mm -hmm. round, they make pins. Uh, yeah. So check them out. Every single one of their campaigns, I can probably digest the entire content in three and a half seconds. It says my name, it says what they're promoting this week, and that says, thanks, the Sticker Mule team, right? Because mm -hmm. they understand that at the end of the day, they're not changing the world. They're not, you know, <laughs> we're not going to solve world hunger with stickers. Maybe we will with some nonprofit that leverages them, but it's stickers. You, your buying decision time frame is going to be very quick. Do you want it or do you not respect that time? Um, so they're being human because they're thinking about the other person. You know, the person that's buying stickers in the office is like the vendor resources manager or the print procurer or a designer that's got 15 job jackets sitting on their desk, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what, uh, or a busy business owner that, is, you know, is worrying about what bills are going to pay. And if they need to put more stickers out on the desk, can they get 20% off this week or not, right? They have understood the human being that's at the other end of the inbox and then designed the content around it. I'm not saying that every brand should do that by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying they clearly have a very good take on their subscribers and they've designed the experience to be as human as they possibly can for that person at the other end of the conversation. Great. And a uh, huge shout out, yes, to Sticker Mule. They did our podcast stickers. We oh. love them. Yes, but their their brand is really, really phenomenal and their communication and, and everything is really great. Yeah, yeah. agreed. How important is it in your email box, uh, since we do get all these emails, to come up with a very creative voice and creative tone. Of course, we want that to match the marketing of our, our organization, but how important is that or how p big of a piece of the puzzle is that when trying to cut through all the clutter of your inbox? I think it's becoming even more important because we are all competing for attention these days. So if you are want to, uh, if you want to try and cut through that noise, it's important that where people are going to select to pay their attention is going to provide utility. And speaking like that person is going to feel, speaking like a human being is going to feel a lot more authentic and was, will feel like they, that organization spent time to create copy and create messaging and positioning that feels like it's for you is becoming vitally important given we have such a limited amount of time and attention to be spending inside of our inboxes. 
That being said, I think there's you know, there's brands that get away with maybe not doing this. I have a good friend, Jake Masters, who lives in uh, Nashville, and apparently there's a bike shop in uh, his old town of Kansas City that literally uses the MailChimp template, and they take one, in, and I'm talking like the subject line template says the latest news from dot, 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 which oh, is no. the subject line that MailChimp puts in all their default templates, uh-huh. and then the copy underneath is literally the boilerplate from their the MailChimp one-column template, <laughs> and they just drop in an image to that top here section that's just their offer for the weekend. Clearly, you know, they, <laughs> I think there's some, some shock value there for us as marketers to be like, oh my gosh, we sent out a campaign that looked like the template, but clearly it works for them because mm-hmm. they continue to send it every single week. Um, and what their target audience, bikers or, you know, people that are looking for bike information, they just look at the image and they're good to go. So uh, I think we, again, the, the us as marketers, we have to get to know the frame of mind that our subscribers in when they're looking at this content and then tailor an experience that sounds like our brand, that feels like our brand utilizing the tone and messaging from our brand, but does so in a way that respects the human being at the other end of that experience. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any more validity or human connection when you're your email campaign is coming from the voice of one person. I've seen, particularly in nonprofits, you'll see something from like the director of the nonprofit that writes and their signature is down below and, and they're writing from their perspective. Is, is there any proof that that can connect with people on a deeper level? Yeah, there is research out there that suggests that personalized from names, depending upon uh, what sort of industry that you're in, whether it's nonprofit or, or, or for-profit, can have pretty dramatic impacts on open rates, anywhere from an increase in 5 to 25 30%, depending upon how popular or how well-known that individual is mm-hmm. um, uh, to the person at the other end, the connection of that individual to the person at the other end of the campaign. You know, you look at nonprofit, which is arguably one of the hardest areas to do email marketing for any number of reasons that we could we could spend an entire hour on. Most of the the most visibility inside of those organizations is typically the executive director or the fundraising director. So having a personalized from name for nonprofits can be really impactful because people make that connection. Let's just look at what's happening here in the United States. All the political campaigns, you see a variety of from name personalization from those campaigns. That comes from the campaign, the person that's running from president themselves. It comes from their campaign director. They've built up, they've built up personalities around different members of their campaign that may be on the news often or, or speaking on behalf of that, that particular candidate. And so they use those names from a, from a from name personalization perspective because they are building relationships uh, with the general public and the people that are following that campaign. Um, <clears throat> you can ex- extend this into the for-profit world uh, and look at when, when we are building relationships with a prospect, a customer, uh, with someone that we are getting to know, it's probably, in, it would be interesting, I think, for any organization to test to see if the, you know, the sales service, the sales or service rep or the account manager that's managing that relationship does their name actually impact open rates in a better way, higher, uh, if you will, um, or get them to open and spend more time in the campaign? Does it get them to click? Where do they do after that click, depending upon the from name? All of these things very much matter. How much impact it's going to have is going to vary industry by industry, but there's certainly any number of research sources that will tell you 
that we should be testing from name to see how that impacts open rate and ultimately all those downline metrics as someone opens your campaigns. According to mom, first we have be bloody brilliant. It's always the little things my love and be kind. Let's see what Jane has to offer up for uh, her next advice. Consistency above all, darling. Consistency. Consistency Yes, Jane Jane Barber, one of her tiny little isms, if you will, is consistency above all, darling. And this is this idea that the experience that you create as a marketer for your email campaigns, it needs to be consistent, specifically in how we measure campaigns. So, uh, you know, one could make a case for consistency from a messaging perspective inside of campaigns, of course, but I utilize this idea of consistency above all, darling. Uh, for email in measuring always two words and always one word. So all, all the ways that we can and at all times that we are delivering campaigns. Uh, we need to understand I, as email marketers, we have a lot more metrics at our disposal than just the tried and true deliverability, open rate, click through rate, click to open rate, conversion rate. There's a ton of additional metrics that we can be utilizing to get a truer, more true, picture of the ROI that email is is driving for our organizations. There's a great email marketing metric matrix from the team at Litmus. Just look up email marketing metric matrix from Litmus uh, through any search engine, and you will find their blog post and white paper on this that unpacks 70 additional or so metrics that we can be utilizing to get a really good picture of the direct, indirect impacts that email is having on our organizations in the short term and long term uh, that we can utilize to really tell a holistic story of the impact of email on the inbox. And by the way, I think their matrix could be utilized to expand how we're measuring anything that we're doing inside uh, of our marketing teams and the impact that those activities have on our organizations, but it is a great framework to build out a more truer understanding of what your marketing efforts are doing to drive revenue inside of your organizations or loyalty um, and the like. So look up that metrics and that matrix, I should say, Mm -hmm. uh, to take a look at all of those different metrics that are available to you that will help you build out a better story. We'll definitely link that to the show notes um, and on a Friday afternoon, say that 10 times fast. Marketing metric (laughs) matrix, marketing metric matrix. Exactly. So you talked a lot about uh, testing here uh, when you gave this presentation uh, when you were in Grand Rapids. What should we do to go about performing useful tests on our emails? What does that look like? For sure. So just a couple of of tips. Uh, Always start with a hypothesis, right? We need to put a line in the sand of what we're expecting this test to do. So if we would like it to drive open rates, we need to say by changing the from name, we are expecting it to increase open rates. Done. There's your hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Why do you do that? Because that allows you to make a decision. Was this worthy of the time that we we spent on running that test? Other things that we need to be doing is ensuring that we test different segments of our subscribers. There is nothing worse that you can do from an A-B testing perspective than simply slicing off just a generic 10% of your list and utilizing that as your focus group or your test group, if you will, or anything that you're doing from a, from a testing perspective, whether it's subject lines from names, content in the email campaign, whatever it is, button, different type of photos, lifestyle, 
uh, product service photography, those sorts of things, all these things that we can be testing. You need to test, you need to segment first and then test because different segments will behave differently. So if we just take a slice of our subscribers, we could have different types of customers in that slice. We could have uh, uh, unengaged subscribers and active subscribers that are, we're conflating results against. So making sure that we are segmenting first before we actually test, always make sure, well, I shouldn't say always make sure, but one of those segments that you should be paying a lot of attention to is your active subscriber segment. So these are people that actively engage with your campaigns. And I mean, actively, I mean, open or click mm -hmm. every 30, 60 or 90 days or whatever that appropriate cadence is for your brand. Testing that particular slice is important to understand if we do something, what is the impact it's going to have? Because typically your active subscribers, the one that are generating the most results from your campaigns. So slicing that segment and then testing against that segment is vitally important. Then making sure you're operationalizing anything that you're testing for the rest of your marketing team, I think is really important. We, you know, whether we're working with at an agency, when we're, we're working with multiple brands, we do this two ways. We give our clients an understanding of what those tests are showing from an AB test perspective inside the email channel, but we're also operationalizing those results at an industry level. So we will say, Hey, cause we typically work with five or six very specific types of industries. We are always looking at what is the impact of different colors of buttons or different product photography, and then leveraging all the insights that we get from all these brands to inform the campaign content and the strategy that we do for potentially new clients or existing clients in the future. So how do you operationalize those results, not only in your own organizations as a brand, but if you're an agency, how do you operationalize all those learnings from those tests so that you don't make those same mistakes in the future or allows you to step off on the right foot from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you mentioned this, it's not just specific campaigns. Also pay attention to kind of the automated operational emails, you know, with autom marketing automation, a lot of those are running welcome campaigns, things that are kind of just running in the background. 74% of companies don't test on these. Why is that important? Well, obviously. So yeah, Litmus <laughs> found last year, I think this was a Litmus and Fluent result, although it could have just been Litmus, that's almost three quarters of companies don't do any AB testing on their automated or operational sends. And sometimes, especially within B2B brands, that those automations, mm -hmm. those flows are, or those drip campaigns are delivering more email than your one size fits all or promotional content. The volume is typically larger depending upon the brand. Um, and that can mean that you're, you're not doing any optimization on those campaigns. You're missing a significant amount of time and potential learnings from those testings, those tests, excuse me, mm -hmm. within your operational automation sense. So you've got to make sure that your promotional campaigns aren't just the places that you're spending time testing, but also ensuring that you're optimizing, whether it's a welcome, you know, whether it's a webinar, whether it's a, a sales a particular drip, whether it's a re-engagement flow, whether it's an abandoned cart series, all of these different types of automation flows that we have at our disposal that we are spending time on those to test how we can eke out an additional amount of revenue or how we can eke out additional results from those campaigns and, and help them perform even better than they are. Excellent. Michael, uh, I do want to get on to some steps to grow our email list. And then again, also talk about how to select a email service provider. But uh, let's recap a little bit of uh, all of, of your British mom's best device uh, from the top to the bottom, and then we'll move on to the, the email list. 
Yeah, for sure. So it's be bloody brilliant, right? Build the best possible emails that you can. Number two, it's always the little things, my love, right? Personalization matters. The more that we can personalize inside of the campaigns, the more that that end user feels like we've written content for them, the more impactful we're going to be in those downline metrics from the conversion and the actions that they're going to take once they get into the experience we're driving them towards. Be kind. And this is this idea that empathy is required even inside of your inbox, right? Speak like a human being, ask people for their content and frequency preferences. Don't buy lists if you don't need to grow your lists organically. And the last one is consistency above all, darling. And this idea as it applies to email is specifically around measuring as much as we can all the time and in many different ways to understand the true impact that email is having inside of our organizations. Episode six was our first email podcast with Michael, and we've got a lot of those links already in that podcast. So we're going to link back to that. We'll we'll relink a lot of these in the show notes for this one as well. But a lot of the topics that we went mm-hmm. into um, more uh, discussion on, and some of that we didn't even talk about today, authentication, DMARC policies. We talked about GDPR, more on metrics, and we've got a lot of other great resources. We asked Michael for his list of some of his his uh, favorite emails, campaigns that he follows. So again, those are all on episode six. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. Of course, we got to give props to Jane for uh, sharing all this. Joining us today. Yeah, motherly knowledge with us. Yes. Does does Jane know that she's like famous now? She does. She actually got to see me speak uh, a couple of months ago uh, here in San Diego where I'm I'm doing this podcast from um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Was a little, I think, embarrassed because I didn't give her the entire context of why my (laughs) father was recording all of these little life lessons that she's passed on (laughs) while they were uh, traveling a few years ago. Um, But uh, certainly I think uh, she found it interesting, albeit when the, 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 the takeaway from my mom, which is always interesting, and this is a very much a motherly reaction as well. I didn't understand half of what you were saying, but yeah. at least it had me in it. Right. So, um, you know, very typical mother reaction who doesn't know what my day job is and couldn't explain it to anyone. At this point, so. I love what it, but she's probably so proud and I love yeah. that. And I secretly want to just go have a cup of tea with Jane. Well, the next time you're in San Diego, you just let me know and we'll make it happen. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. So let's talk about how to grow your email list. Michael, I know you sent us a list of 80 plus proven and simple ways, which I'm sure we can uh, share in the show notes. We're not going to cover all 80 of those today, but let's just talk at a basic level because I know that this is you know, one of the biggest questions for a lot of organizations. I think this is one of the biggest challenges for marketers is really how do we ethically that's the key ethically grow our list yeah. do we need to be ethical yeah we do <laughs> you you know we we should try exactly <laughs> really try as much as we possibly can uh so let's start with the big stuff let's let's start with uh, and and I, I think like most other things in the marketing world that a lot of this is going to take time and there's no quick fix where overnight you're just going to get this big list so uh michael yeah what what where would you start with this yeah, so when, when you consider how you grow your email list is understand where are all the touch points that we have a moment with our customers. So these can be online, right? They can be on your blog. They can be on content. They can be on white papers. They can be on, uh, if you're doing gated or ungated content, they can be in different components on your website as people are scrolling through. They could be within a chat bot. They can be in within basically any touch point that we're having with a customer. They can be offline as well. Look at all the retailers and how they drive subscriptions. Maybe the best one ever is Nordstrom's, I think, who who does a really, really good job of 
of asking for that email address and saying it's for your receipt, but you can also receive uh, email campaigns if you're up for that, right? Um, so any, any touch point that we have, the business card, the trade show booth, um, where, you know, the, uh, if you have service people that are going into homes or businesses, can we opt you in for your newsletter or your annual, uh, renewal notice or your annual service notice, right? Any moment that we have in where we touch customers is a moment to be asking for email addresses. So that's the first idea is make sure that we are maximizing the touch points in as easy way as possible. The second thing is understand that it is the things that resonate in the inbox are exclusive. The more things that we can deliver in the inbox that are exclusive to that channel, the more people will talk about it, that will drive word of mouth subscriptions, the more that they will forward and share it as if it is exclusive to the inbox. If we're just doing a 20% off sale as a B2C brand or B2B, if, you know, if you're sales driven uh, or discount driven, I should say, because we're all sales driven, um, mm-hmm. but discount driven is, that the value of that subscriber is very, very high comparatively to potentially other channels that you don't own as a brand. You don't own your Facebook followers. You don't own your Twitter followers. uh, You don't own any of that real estate. You own your email list. So that should be considered holy ground for delivering as exclusive an experience as possible. We should be giving people more because they have taken the time and energy to subscribe to our campaigns. And I also think we should be giving more, especially to different segments, active subscribers, people that drive more dollars and more engagement with our campaigns. We have worked with a brand in the past that would give better incentives to people. They were cross-referencing the number of social followers that those individuals had and delivering exclusives just for those types of individuals, because then those individuals would go share and say, holy wow, I got the best, this incredible thing inside of my inbox from brand XYZ. Right, so exclusivity becomes really, really important. Then the next thing that you can do is look for all of the places where you can continue to create that empathetic or human experience where someone wants to continue to be a subscriber so that when you do have them subscribed, they continue to want to feel like they are valued. So our subscription preferences center, do not make it abundantly clear uh, that uh, you need to make it abundantly clear inside of those subscription preferences center that they have the opportunity to change content or change frequency or make adjustments to the, the content that they're receiving rather than simply opting out. So that's where I would focus is understand all the touch points, figure out how to work those, those touch points to create subscription opportunities, then deliver as much exclusivity as you possibly can inside of the inbox because People will talk about it. They will share it with friends, whether it's online or offline, or if it's a forward from them, and then make sure that it, if someone does get to that subscription preferences center, there is something of value for them to make a decision that is different than never, never receiving email from your brand in the future. Michael, I, w- I do want to ask about touch points as a start. And I know this is something we talked about a little bit in the first podcast too, is often when you go to a website for me, the first time before I engage in any content, I'm already getting flashed that, you know, join our email list, or um, maybe it's a little bit longer after I've been in a couple of pages, but I still have no idea. I, I don't trust these people yet. So when when's the ideal time and what's the best way to set that up so that um, you can have a little bit of a rapport first before you, you know, 
buy me a drink first before you ask to go out or whatever. Yeah, that's a great analogy to use in this situation, right? Is those toaster or pop-up units that you're talking about, they're incredibly annoying first, but we have to acknowledge that they do drive very good conversion rates for email signups. The problem is, is that because most brands see this happening in other brand pages is they don't understand that there is a ideal amount of time for brand to brand that will drive higher conversion rates for those toasters and pop-ups. And we've got to test to find out what window of time is that. I will tell you based on what I've seen, at least in the last few years from consumer B2B brands is that it is usually <clears throat> the two metrics you're looking at is number of pages that someone's visited or time on site. I'm more of a fan of time on site just mm -hmm. because number of pages could be, someone could be clicking through and they're just trying to find something right. Um, so that behavior can be misleading for understanding if they are actually engaged person who wants to receive this information. So what we have seen, and this is a collective we of, of, of strategists and teams that I've worked around is for consumer brands. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like that 35 to 48 second period of they've been on the site for 35 to 48 seconds is usually a, a pretty good sweet spot. On the B2B side, especially if the buying cycle is long or the content of your, uh, you know, the industry that you're in requires a level of education or content that is technical or scientific, it typically those times get longer. The sweet spot that I've, that I've seen in the industries that I've worked in within B2B are about 58 seconds to about a minute 45 usually. Um, so waiting that amount of time before you pop up that toaster or pop-up unit um, is one way that you can test those things. And also understand that these can be nuanced in the sense that they don't need to be a full screen takeover. You don't need to annoy someone to a level that they have to stop cognitively thinking about what they're consuming and think about where do I click the X to not have to give you my email, right? We can do bottom banner pop-ups that are just sitting at the bottom footer, like sort of above the content and our, and the, and our website content flows underneath it. We can do that at the top as well. We can simply pin it so that someone can continue to read. We can pop it out from the side. There's any number of ways that we can create the same sort of interaction that a pop-up and toaster would be that doesn't stop the experience that that human being is having. Those are all different things that we can test from time on site to different types of, if you will, interruptions or interruptors uh, on the site that'll allow us to understand what's the right modality to interrupt someone? Is it the full page rollover or is it a you know right corner, left corner, left side, top, bottom? And what's the timing, the appropriate timing that we see the highest conversion rates in? Mm -hmm. What about uh, gated content? What, what are your thoughts on that? Because I see that a lot with B2B. Thought leadership is huge and that's kind of like the natural, well, let's just gate this content. What do we, is that successful? Do you think that works in growing your email list? I think it does. It's, it's mm -hmm. very successful. It's something that's tried and true. Do I think people should be doing it? This for me comes down to the exclusivity and the value of the content mm -hmm. that's being gated. If I can find what your survey, your white paper, this mm -hmm. is, what, it, what you're telling me, what's your big takeaway, what's the big insight anywhere else, that's not worth being gated. Sure. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Just end of the day, if it's already been done, why are you gating it? You're not going to get leads that are engaged uh, from those sorts of things. Um, you've got to make sure you're delivering as much exclusivity. If you're going to do gated content, it's got to be something somebody can't find easily elsewhere. Lots of value, lots of utility. Um, because at this point, most 
content mm -hmm. has been democratized and people have talked about it and have put best practices up, right? It's somewhere else and they're not gating it. And those are the, those are the sources that people are linking back to, which is driving search. Those are the, those are the things that are, that will get more interest in rather than having to give away information. So first party research, sure, mm -hmm. get the heck out of it. It's first party, you've got insights that people haven't been delivered before. It's recent, it's new, gate it. If it's something that people can find in inordinate different places, probably not the best thing to do. If you're packaging it differently, I think that's an interesting way to think about gated content, right? Maybe the experience that it's around, it becomes more gated. Um, is there, you know, if you're monetizing the content on your site, what can you give away before you need to gate becomes an interesting tactic to look at, right? Can mm -hmm. we give away the first quarter, the first half of the information before we have to gate it? Um, and then when you do gate it, you better deliver a, a good experience for that person once they've, uh, once they've actually said, hey, and raise their hand, hey, I want your content. The download should be fast. The experience should be fast. You should be sending them a welcome series if they're not a subscriber. You should be dripping more campaigns about the content they're looking for if they already are a subscriber, right? All of those things. If they've raised their hand and suddenly they're giving you more information. And if they're logged into your website, please, 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 please don't make me fill out more mm -hmm. information if I'm already logged in as a user of your site. Nothing more annoying. Um, take the information, give it to them, add it to their customer profile that they've downloaded it. Don't make me actually put in my first name, put in my last name, or autofill the content and then just let me download that gated content. Well, and one of the stats that we just got in this week's uh, lunch presentation, so Jason Schemmel spoke on the evolution of content marketing. He talked about gated content and he said more than 90% uh, of people abandon gated content if that's the first touch, assuming that's the first touch point. They come, they see you, they haven't built that trust, they don't trust you yet. So, you know, part of that goes back to um, just all of those touch points and also building trust and um, getting people to know you. Because if they just come to you and you're asking, hey, give us this, I think a lot of people are hesitant and may take off before they interact with your, your content. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a great consumer oriented brand that's I think done this quite well, and it's called Adams. They're a shoe company out of Brooklyn, New York, and they sell one pair of shoes that is just different colors. Mm. You can get access to the four first colors without giving away information and can buy them. Good to go. If you want the exclusive colors, you got to give them your email address. Oh, interesting. So you that's want that's kind of cool. Yeah sweet neon color that only, you know, that only they're going to give away 200 pairs of those. They're gating that. You've got to give away something for that rather than just buying the black, mm -hmm. maybe gray, sand neutral color, if you will. Um, that's a consumer example. <clears throat> you look at, um, you know, a, a great example of not gating content, um, but it's still exclusive and amazing is you look at Mary Meeker's annual report, right? Who publishes that on LinkedIn and SlideShare and everywhere else, and it generates an enormous amount of, uh, of clicks and activity and, and interest and news and articles around her content to the state of the internet, every single year report that she does. Um, so, uh, and again, this idea of exclusivity becomes important and not being the barrier to that first touch point as, as your speaker this week suggested, I think is a, a really important thing to understand whether you're deciding to gate or not gate. So if you're doing content, you need a strategy to walk them through the journey. You need to focus on value. 
exclusivity and have a good user experience around that, especially if you're doing a gate. Yes. You've spoken on keeping your email list clean and segmenting and interacting with the people that are most engaged versus not. So what are the general practices? So you've got an email list of X amount, say 25 are very engaged and the other 75% are never even opening or engaging. At what point because I've heard some of the concepts of resending to those people that don't open it the first time. And then if these people aren't becoming engaged long-term, then how do you scrub that email list? Do you put them on in a separate category and only email them every once in a while? Do you totally disregard them? What are best practices for that? Sure. So some, uh, some, some initial thoughts, uh, those subscribers that are not engaged, um, you first need to know do those email addresses even exist. There are several tools out there, whether it's Validity or Bright Verify, that allow you to keep a really keen watch on does this email address even exist anymore and allow you to do some cleaning of email address lists. In fact, I think um, uh, one other newer tool that's out there that, uh, that Christopher Penn talked on on Twitter this past week is called millionth emailer i'm probably not saying hmm. that right it's something like millionth email something we'll find it and we'll, we'll link it find in the show notes yeah um that comb through your emails your email subscribers to make sure if they are valid email addresses so hmm. combing through them to understand if they're valid now if they are valid then it is working on those to understand how active are they is this someone that hasn't done anything since they first subscribed is this someone that typically purchases on a, a once a year basis or a twice a year basis those are things you need to look at because they're going to be nuanced to your brand maybe there's one white paper that they always uh they always download and that's the one that you're going to want to deliver to them maybe they only participate during your black friday sale if we don't understand those nuances, we could be cleaning out people that actually very much want to continue to do business with us, but just we haven't thought through the right times when we should be delivering that content. So there's never a blanket rule that I follow and, and the teams that I work with follow that says, hey, if they have not done X in a certain amount of days, then you take them off the list because fundamentally you're leaving money on the table if you just put them into a sunset list and never email them again. Now, for those that maybe haven't engaged, for a year or two, there is legal restrictions mm -hmm. depending country to country. In Canada, if somebody hasn't done business with you in 24 months, you are legally required to not email them unless they raise their hand again. So we have to understand that there are geographic things that we're going to need to put into play from making sure that our lists are as clean as possible. And then it is understanding their behavior that we bucket them into the appropriate amount of, of segments and lists so that they're receiving what we think they need to be getting. And then there's some people that just simply need to come off our list because that suppresses uh, the all of our metrics. The more people that are in the list, the lower, uh, you know, if, if mm -hmm. they're continuing to be in the list, this is straight stats. If you have a thousand people in your list and 500 of them have not opened for five years, why are we not tossing those and putting them in a su suppression list? Because the moment that we remove those and the same amount of people opened and click through, they would double overnight. Our results would look a lot more healthy. We'd be probably spending less money depending upon what platform we're on. Um, and we would be getting higher deliverability and engagement scores from all of the internet service providers because they're all watching what these subscribers are doing with our campaigns. So the, that list hygiene health discussion is, is very nuanced. And I, I'm not the type of, uh, of marketer that just says, here's the tried and true. This is exactly what you should be doing. 
look at that unengaged subscriber to understand what is their typical buying behavior. Maybe they can be bucketed into different segments that you deliver campaigns on on a less regular basis. Then look at those that legally need to be removed. Then look at those that just simply need to come off of your campaigns because they're just not raising their hand and being interested anymore. And then, of course, there's going to be a bucket of email addresses and people that simply don't exist that need to come off those lists as well. All right, Michael, and in essence of time, because I mean, we could talk all day on this stuff. And again, we've only scratched the surface on what you could do to uh, build your email list. So we'll, we'll put a link to the article that you gave us with how to grow your email list, 80 plus proven and simple ways, because there's some great stuff in there. But let's talk a little bit about email service providers. And first and foremost, I want to make sure that I have my terminology correct. So you've got email service provider, and we also have internet service provider, right? Yep, that's so, correct. So when we're talking about stuff like um, email service providers that that you do the targeted emails through, and then our internet service providers, which provide things like Gmail and Yahoo and Hotmail and AOL for those of us who are really up with the technological uh, uh, with with the time. So so we I have those the, the oldies but the goodies. Right. <laughs> I have those correct, right? Yep, you do. Okay, so ESPs. So how does that process look if somebody is looking for looking to start into an ESP or looking to switch ESPs. I know a lot of this may be different from B2B, B2C, and also the size of the organization. So where do you start in that process? So the first place that I always recommend you start is understanding what are the deliverability scores of the ESPs that you're selecting. What you want to make sure is that you're not spending a ton of time on email service providers that do not publish or at least will be transparent with you with what are their deliverability metrics. There are a few out there, and I'm not in the business of, of, mm-hmm. of setting these, these, these ESPs on fire that do not publish their deliverability rates. I would be concerned as a business with a provider that will not tell me, here is my average deliverability rate. The good ones will tell you that. Several of them posted on their blogs every single year. So the first thing you want to make sure is, is this the type of email service provider that is publishing their deliverability rates, whether they're telling you that or whether they're publishing it on their website. Next, I would look at right-sized for your organization. All of these email service providers, whether you're starting at the mom and pop size all the way through enterprise-sized organization, they all cost money. And what comes with that investment is different features and functionality. When I say right-sized, it's finding the right one that works for the budget that you've got at your disposal and that has the features that you need to be able to utilize. The enterprise-sized tools are going to cost more money because they're targeted at enterprise-sized clients. If you're a mom-and-pop shop, you may not need Marketo, Responsus, Eloqua. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may want to look down the line at other ones that are right-sized for your organization. My good buddy, Chris Sietzema, at Sietzema, S-I-E-T, S-E-M-A on Twitter says, you know, you don't want to kill the bumblebee with the bazooka. So that analogy of making sure you've got the right sized email provider for what you're doing as a brand is vitally important. Is it future focused? So when we talk about future focused is as a brand, do you have a roadmap for things you want to do in the future in the inbox? Maybe that's gifts, it's interactive content. Uh, do we want to be testing and doing automation and personalization in the future? Does our provider allow us to do the things we're going to want to do in three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, two years, three years, four years down the line? Do they have a product roadmap that they're developing their tool towards? This becomes really important because let me tell you, there 
there are fewer things harder, um, more less painful than changing email service providers. And I've done it 25, 30 times for big brands, and they are never a fun process. Mm-mm. They're just not yeah. fun. They're painful and they're icky and there's so much things can go wrong and I just get anxiety ridden like just thinking about it like I'm getting it's just like I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps thinking about having to do one because the bigger the organization the the bigger size list the more that email counts to the bottom line the more stress that goes into these these transitions and so it's not something that you have to that you take like heartedly because there are so many steps that go into a transition so making sure it's future focused so that you don't have to do this year after year is going to be important and that may mean that you need to spend a little bit more from an investment perspective year one year two than your maybe your your boss or the organization is comfortable with but it's about being able to say well that's because the roadmap that we're suggesting is we do X, Y, and Z over the next couple of years, and this will allow it to do it mm-hmm. as we grow into the ability to be able to provide those sorts of things. So um, deliver- the deliverability, is it right-sized? Is it future-focused? And then does it fit in our process as a brand? So any organization is going to have a process of how you get from ideation of campaign to delivering the campaign in the inbox. You want to make sure that your email service providers provider works in that process? Do they integrate into tools that you utilize? You know, do you have third-party connections that you need to make in order to get these da- all the disparate data to talk to each other? Does it fit into what we can do as an organization? Some have templates, some don't. Um, how much education is it going to take us to understand how to utilize this tool really, really well? I have said this in numerous, um, in numerous talks, and I don't think this is you know, going to be breaking news to anyone, but Marketo requires a PhD to understand how to utilize mm-hmm. well. That's just, that's, that's it's true. true. It Adobe true. does as well. I mean, these big enterprise platforms, there's reasons why they have certifications because mm-hmm. they're beasts and you have to use them for a long time to understand how they work and what's, what's the little quirks behind them. And then there's tools that just make sense, I think, to the average human being like a MailChimp or something along those lines, or an Emma that are much more, or a Pardot even is, I think, much more user-friendly than some of these other tools uh, because they position themselves that way. Autopilot is another good one that's out there that's very easy to utilize. So does it work for your organization from how does it plug into all the different tools you're using? Is it going to be easy to report on? Is it going to work on our process? So those are the four lenses that that I like to look towards and and that I've seen a lot of great strategists and organizations utilize deliverability, right size, future focus, and does it work from a process perspective. Michael, do you find that a lot of the, um, and I know that I, I've never worked in the enterprise level, I've worked on some of the smaller ones, that a lot of the concepts of how, how to do the management of those, how to build the lists, um, are there any consistencies in how that process works from one to another, or is it pretty much just all over the board? Um, a few of them are getting better at creating consistencies, but they're all over the board. I mean, common nomenclature is pretty is pretty consistent from provider to provider, but the way that they behave, the steps you have to take to launch a campaign, you know, the check boxes you have to select, they're very provider by provider specific. Okay. And obviously, if you are switching from one to another, it's not just as easy as exporting a CSV file and importing it into another one. No, um, you know, (laughs) it it, it is not. And and it can be it can be. Don't get me wrong. Like if you've got 25 people on your list, then great. Cool. Very easy process. 500 people, a thousand. Still cool. Still easy. 
But when we get into like 50, 60, 100, a million, 5 million, 10 million, that is an, that is an mm-hmm. entirely beastly process that requires months of planning. It requires a step-by-step process in order to get all of our data into the right places. And then it requires a warming up period on potentially new IPs, new servers, so that we don't destroy all the good work that we've done over the past few years from a deliverability perspective. So there's any number of nuances that come into these, into these, into these, uh, into these processes, into these, uh, into these decisions to change ESPs. And that's why you don't see it done as frequently, especially at the enterprise level um, and why these enterprise size tools are so aggressive in helping us get onto the tool because once we're on the tool, we're there for a long, long time because we don't want to go through the nightmare of having to do that process again. All right, Michael. Well, well, thank you again. I mean, any one of these topics, we could we could literally go on and on and on for hours. And I know in in episode six, we talked more. We got into some more specifics about some of the different ESPs, and we talked about some of the more popular enterprise and um, smaller um, server levels as well. And we've got some of those links. So yeah, all of definitely that- make sure you listen to these together. Yes, lots of good information in both. Yes. Bounce bounce back and forth. We will link mm-hmm. the we'll link the show notes on the website. So. All that stuff will be there for you. You can just pinball back and forth. Uh, and hey, Michael, you've got a lot of time. I mean, you've got Thanksgiving, right? and couch, and Black Friday. Yeah. You can just sit there gluttonous and listen to <laughs> content on email. I mean, what could be better? Eat yeah. your turkey and listen to Michael Barber and you there are you good. Go. That is a good Thanksgiving right there. <laughs> oh, it's enjoying the little things, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So Michael, uh, question number one, who or what inspires you? I don't think this has changed from episode six, and I'm fairly certain what I said uh, during this episode, but uh, this starts with my parents. Uh, my parents inspire me every single day. The backstory on mom and, and her husband, aka my father, um, is that they started a business when I was eight weeks in utero, excuse me, eight weeks, eight months in utero mm-hmm. of my mother, and built that business uh, over the course of about 25 years. It was entirely employee owned by the time that they sold it, lived the American dream, and also create an American dream for many of the people that worked uh, with them at the organization. And I continue to be inspired by them. I think it, I think it, uh, you know, in a very odd way, it's also a, uh, the, the, the impact of them is also a source of uh, incredible apprehension of like, what am I going to leave the world? Because look what they gave my sister and I, um, but they are my source of inspiration every single day because it is not often that you get to see two people who moved literally across the other side of the world, started something from scratch, sold it, and truly created the American dream um, these days. And to be uh, a part of that experience is unique and I find incredibly lucky to have been a part of. So they're, they're the people that inspire me every single day. Oh, I love it. I think that's pretty consistent with your mm-hmm. last with your last answer. You also said your team that you work with and your partner. And they continue to do that, both of them. And I don't <laughs> I'm not trying to minimize that to the team of Godfrey and Samuel by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, Josh is uh, just pulling out your I'm uh, just he's comparing got the notes right there, I guess. I've got them right you up go. here. You've, you've got the notes. I mean, <laughs> I've been incredibly blessed to spend almost two and a half years with my team at Godfrey. Uh, building on what is already a 70-year-old organization by the time that I got there and building on uh, all the incredible success that they've had. I have, I have, I can't wait to see what they do as a team over the next couple of years 
and, and every single day I am inspired by the crazy human being that spends the most time with me, and that would be Samuel. We call each other's each other's favorite psychopaths. Oh, that's um, fantastic! And um, I would not want to have another psychopath next to me minus him. So can we, can we talk about that for a second? Uh, you mentioned, you know, just for the next few weeks, you're at Godfrey. What's the next chapter look like for you? What is that all about? You know, I don't, I, this is uh, man, I've had this question probably 30 or 40 times, if not a hundred over the last <laughs> couple of months. So it is not breaking news, but I resigned about two months ago and um, it's not for any more reasons other than Godfrey is based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My partner Samuel is in Washington, DC, and we've been doing this long distance thing and it's just time to make mm-hmm. the life adjustments to, uh, to enjoy each other together more often. And so we sat down and did the pros and cons list for all these different cities and, and somewhere else won. And sure. um, I came to Godfrey to, to, to do some very specific things. And Stacey and Aaron, who are, who are our two owners and, and my leaders, uh, feel like we've accomplished what we set out to do two years ago. And I, I was very lucky. They were a consulting client of mine for five years previously. So I spent seven and a half years working with this team in some capacity which is, you know, not a not a short amount of time to have a relationship with a group of people by any stretch of imagination. And I'm I am really very, very sad about leaving that this beautiful little town of Lancaster that I've gotten to know for the past two and a half years because it is endearing and it's lovely. Uh, but I am really excited for what's next. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I literally just started interviewing about two weeks ago. Um, so if anybody's listening to this, there you go. first senior level marketing strategist, uh, <laughs> I am available. Um, but uh, we will see. Time will tell over the next couple of weeks. For yeah. sure. Well, congratulations to all the incredible work you did at Godfrey and to your team. But mostly congratulations to you and Sam. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. congrats. All right. So I know that this is definitely where the conversation kind of got sidetracked on the last one, but it was for some, it stimulated some very good conversation on what your favorite, well, we said personal development, business, or marketing related book, but we kind of got, we got off on Harry Potter and we talked quite a bit about that, which was a very interesting conversation, by the way. Yep. Yep. No, I'm, I, you know, uh, as much as JK Rowling rules the roost, we could definitely uh, shift this conversation towards business and, and, and productivity related book. <laughs> I just finished uh, Ron Tite's Think, Do, Say mm. book. So the title is Think, Do, Say. And by the way, while I'm saying and talking about this, I should probably make sure that I did actually do those words in the right order. Um, think, Do, Say. Yes, I did. Okay. All right. I, I, for like the first week that I had the book, I was like, you got to buy this book called Think, Say, Do. And then Ron <laughs> sent me a text. was like, hey, on your social media, you keep saying Think, Say, Do. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but Ron Tite, who um, Ron runs an organization called Church and State, an agency based in Canada. They work with uh, uh, huge brands in Canada, uh, Walmart, uh, um, a bunch of different supermarkets, a bunch of different insurance companies and banks in in Canada. Um, He has written a book called Think, Do, Say, and it's about building personal and organizational momentum in a busy, busy world. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Ron's book is really about this idea of getting real, that we have to cut the jargon, that we've got to really build purpose inside of our brands um, and understand that people are really inundated with a ton of content these days with broken promises with endless product extensions um, and and a ton of pressure. And this book is about how you can really understand 
as a brand that we've got to think about the experiences that we're creating. We've got to get better at them and just do them, not say we're going to do them and Mm -hmm. not do them, but do them, put them in practice and then promote them um, and say that we are doing these good things. Right. Um, And and do so in an an authentic human way. Uh, And it's just a great book um, that's structured well. I love the framework. Ron happens to be uh, a comedian at heart. He's been in at Second City and all the major cities. Um, it's on Canadian TV all the time, uh, and it's just lovely, uh, comedian and funny. Um, and you can just feel that humor and, and who he is as an individual in the book as well. So Think, Do, Say by Ron Tite. It is available on the lovely Amazon or your friendly <laughs> neighborhood bookstore as well. I love it. Oh, I'm putting that one on my list right now. I know. We need, say. yeah, I think we need to compile a book list because we've gotten we some do. really good suggestions over all of our podcasts and um, Traction EOS and some of these other books that I've heard about. And, and Michael, the one that you explained last time, although I do have a bit of a um, short attention span when it comes to, to getting down and reading, but I think the one that you said, Principles, by Ray, oh, by Ray Dalio. Yeah. yeah, I mean that—that that was the one that you said was a pretty. That's a pretty long read, right? That's a big one. Yeah, that's my Bible. I've been a big Ray fan for a while, um, and I continually refer back to that one every every now and then, just to like get my steering ship, uh, if you will, uh, my north star. Occasionally, as a, as an aside, there's another one that's sitting right in front of me um, that I just started. And this was a recommendation that came from Rand Fishkin. I'm sure some of our mm-hmm. listeners are familiar with Rand, but mm-hmm. buildmoz.com um, and has gone on to be uh, an extremely well-regarded thought leader in our space. He recommended a book by April Dunford several weeks ago on Twitter, and it's called Obviously Awesome. How just to nail- bought it. Yes. You did. I yes. did. Okay, so yes, yes. How to nail product positioning so customers get it, buy it, and love it. Mm. And yeah. He said this was one of the best product marketing books that he had, he had read in years and years and years. Um, it's not a long read. Uh, it's only about 175 pages. Um, and the first five or six pages I'm already addicted to. So that's something else I'm sinking my teeth into. Awesome. All right. Okay. We've got a couple good book suggestions. We'll mm-hmm. put those all in the show notes. And of course, Harry Potter. You got to put that one up. And, and Harry Potter. Potter. You know. It's a timeless, timeless classic. Um, and then finally, if you could boil what you've learned down into your career to one piece of advice for others, what would that be? Or since we kind of already asked you that question, I mean, advice can come in many forms and sometimes you hear something new that like, wow, I never even thought of that. That's a great one. So just how about some good advice that you would offer up to somebody? I think last time you asked me this question, I used my favorite one from my favorite life lesson in my professional career has come from my first boss, and that's Jay Bear. Mm-hmm. I think this is the one, right? Yep. This is, you always must be a, a lifelong learner. You're either learning or you're dying. And that continues to be a guide for me. The lessons my mom has shared with you and, and the, how I screwed those into a packaging for email marketing. There you go. It, it certainly, I think, at, at a at a very uh, at a very distinct level, a certain basic level, it, it it reduces the impact of them. But I do think that they are lessons that don't just apply to email. I think they can apply to our life. I think they can apply mm-hmm. provide the work that we do as marketers. Um, you know, consistency of experience when you're dealing with customers is important. They shouldn't pick up the phone one time and hear a different story the second. You know. Be kind. There is n- there is no time in our customers' days where where we shouldn't be kind, where every experience that we're delivering for them should not be empathetic. Uh, um, it's always the little things. You know, it is 
the moments, the ways we choose to show that we are paying attention to customers and the people in our lives matter. Neen James, who's a, a delightful little Aussie, um, who's written a book called Attention Pays, talks about this, about this idea of intentional attention. You know, all of those little things, consistency above all, darling, it's always the little things. They're true life lessons that I try and live by, not always successfully. Um, and certainly, I, you know, right now, I have much more time to read, which is why I have all these book suggestions, because <laughs> I'm winding things down at Godfrey, right? Um, and so I don't always get the chance to hold myself accountable to always being a learner. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't always, I like any human being, I have my moments of, uh, of, of not being the most kind human at, at times. You know, we all have our, our blips, but, you know, providing some North Stars, I think, is always important. Uh, writing them down and coming back to them and um, putting them in a place that you can refer to them. Um, there's uh, another interesting lesson that I think is important uh, um, for organizations and us as leaders and managers as we grow our careers is um, that people need to be reminded of these things. You can't just say it mm. and then expect people are going to do it. You have to create visual representations of it. You have to, uh, you have to uh, in, ensure that people are hearing it on a regular basis, that there is places that they can refer back to them, whether it's, you know, a, a little book or a poster mm -hmm. or something along those lines that allows people to remind ourselves of what we care about. Uh, I think that's important for organizations. I think that's important for ourselves that we've got a, a steering ship, if you will, or a set of values and things that we care about that we try and hold ourselves accountable to. Values, mission, you're all going in the right direction, mm -hmm. support from the team. Yeah. I mean, that's all, that's all, good all, all good stuff. Well, yep. Michael, thanks again for everything. Great content. We, we hope to be in touch with you and of course, talk to you on a regular basis as all this, all this stuff kind of changes and we can't wait to hear more of your new adventures as you, as you head to DC. It's always yep. a pleasure to have you, but yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what's next for you. Well, I love spending time with your team. So thanks for having me again. And uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully in the, maybe in another two years, we'll come back and circle back on another topic as well. That sounds great. We'll hold you to that. <laughs> sounds good. Michael, before we let you go, how do people contact you, follow you, engage, interact, all that good stuff? Yep. I'm at Michael J. Barber pretty much everywhere online. Feel free to, to follow me or DM me and I'd be happy to have a chat on whatever topic you'd like to talk about from my delightfully lovely British mother to all things email. Yes. Please pass our hellos to Jane. Yeah, I will. I yes. will. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. We really appreciate it. We'll Thank talk so soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And Megan, before we wrap things up, let's uh, give one more shout out to the sponsors. Yeah, again, a huge thank you to our sponsors who allow us to do this podcast and our luncheons. So to our gold sponsors, MI Biz and BizCom Media. To our silver sponsors, PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio, and Red66 Marketing. And again, to Red66 Marketing for allowing us to use their conference space to record this podcast. And to our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning. So thank you guys so much. And coming up, our next podcast, The Evolution of Content Marketing, Where It's Been and Where It's Going. Jason Schemmel uh, just spoke to us recently, and we talked about why marketers need to get back to the basics through building trust over time, quality content over quantity, and how to create uh, authority building content. Jason is a content marketing consultant who's been in the content and social marketing space for the better part of eight years. He loves helping others realize their potential through working together, mentoring, 
or just cheering them on as they're heading down the right path. So uh, our next podcast, we're going to talk to Jason a little yeah. bit and uh, talk to a little bit about those basics. And and from the lunch presentation, got some great stats with him. Lots that, of good info from him. Yeah, yeah. that really kind of changed the perspective and talked a little bit about podcasts too as one of those good pieces yeah. of uh, your marketing. I know. I'm excited to chat with him. So that's going to be another good podcast coming up soon. All right, Megan, we'll uh, see you next time. See you next time, Josh. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative, be bold, set your marketing in motion.